This is Mark Ronson with his incredible new album, Late Night Feelings. Featuring the hit singles, Late Night Feelings and Nothing Breaks Like a Heart. Mark Ronson, Late Night Feelings, out Friday. Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen and with me are... Devendra Hardwar And Jeff Kanata. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. You can find more episodes of our podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Today, we're going to be discussing what we've been watching, discussing some film news. Maybe there's a time for a Slash Film Court in there where we adjudicate your movie-related dilemmas. And then we're going to conclude with an in-depth review of King Arthur... Legend of the Sword, the new Guy Ritchie movie that I have so much to, to talk about with you guys. Uh, should be a you gotta fun say, discussion. You got to say the the Legend of the Sword because it's um, it's the first of the King Arthur franchise. Yes, and certainly it's always been that title uh, for the entire time of the movie's creation, uh, and hasn't gone through a ton of changes. Uh, right. Seriously, though, the, I, I believe the title has been changed several times in addition to multiple things about the movie that are critical. So. A uh, lot of lots to discuss. Before we get to that, I wanted to throw a shout out to the late great Powers Booth, uh, an actor who I greatly enjoyed, uh, who passed away this week at the age of sixty-eight. Uh, so young. Yeah, I mean, definitely someone whose work I, I consistently was impressed by. Um, do you guys have a favorite Powers Booth performance or a, <laughs> a Powers Booth moment? I mean, so Tombstone. Tombstone, yeah, of course. You know, that's one of my favorite movies, and he's he's just one of those solid character actors that whenever he pops up, you know, he's going to be he be good, and he's he lends gravitas to everything he touches. You know, he's just one of those solid solid character actors. He's yeah. had a really good uh, really good TV run uh, recently too, like uh, Deadwood and Twenty Four, also Agents of Shield, which I know you guys don't watch, but uh, you know, it's really fun stuff. Like whenever this guy appeared, you know. Um, some shit was about to go down. It's like he is just so good at being villainous and uh, conniving. He was just so good at this. But as a kid, I also uh, watched uh, – what was that movie called again? Uh, Rapid Fire for some reason. I saw that movie a lot on cable and he was, was always – the uh, Jason really, yes. Lee movie? The Jason Lee movie. Yeah. Wow. Jeez, bring it or, back. No, sorry. Brandon Lee. Brandon, Brandon Lee. Lee. Sorry. Get the Lee's yeah, confused. Taking it back. Back when Brandon Lee was like going to be – Rapid you know, fire, my god. Rapid fire. That is a fun wow. little movie. Yeah. Wow. Uh right. So uh in terms of my favorite performances, I really liked him in Frailty, um, liked him in Sin City. But mm. my favorite role for Powers Booth guys is probably one role where he's playing the good guy in uh-huh. the movie MacGruber. Uh, <laughs> I he That's was, true. He he's the straight man in that film and uh he plays it wonderfully. Uh, and he gets to be a good guy for once, and I just I'm always delighted by his performance in that movie. So, Powers Booth, incredible talent. You will be missed. Um, but just wanted to give him his due at the beginning of this episode of the Slash Filmcast. Let's move on, guys, to what we've been watching this week. Um, I'll talk briefly about something I've been watching. I had a chance to go see this movie, The Wall. Have you guys heard of this movie, The Wall? It's the new Doug mm-hmm. Lyman movie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from. We make a Pink Floyd movie, right? 
Uh, no, no. It's, uh, it has to do with uh, two American <laughs> soldiers who get trapped by a lethal sniper with only an unsteady wall between them. Uh, there are, I think, only three actors listed in the credits for this movie. Uh, and it is a super low-budget movie that takes place only in one location. It happens during uh, Bush, uh, George W. Bush's Iraq War. Uh, and I thought, overall, it's a pretty effective uh, little thriller. Right? It's, a, it's a neat little genre exercise of what you can do when you don't have that much money. You have uh, a couple actors who are really good at their jobs, uh, and you need to generate as much tension as possible with as few resources as possible. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I don't know if I go to the theater to watch it. Amazon Studios is distributing this, which means that uh, you'll eventually get to see it on Amazon Prime. Uh, and so I would actually just say, wait for that, but, but check it out when that happens if you want to see that kind of movie. You know, it's like um, like Buried, if you ever saw Buried, you know, the Ryan Reynolds movie, yeah. or uh, uh, other movies that take place in one location, like Phone Booth or something like that, you know? Right. Just like, how do, you, how do you, yeah, how do you create tension with just the, the, the strength of these actors' performances? And I, I'd say this is a solid entry into that genre. Um, it, even at a lean 90 minutes or 88 hmm. minutes, it does feel a little bit too long. It does feel a little bit languorously paced. Um, maybe it could have lost an additional five minutes, which I know the movie's already super short. Um, but uh, I, I, other than that, I liked it. Aaron Taylor Johnson, uh, this is probably my favorite thing he's done in a while, uh, and he's kind of one of the, the soldiers in this movie. So uh, enjoyed it. The movie's The Wall, and it's out in theaters right now, and it's also distributed by Amazon Studios, so one day it'll probably be on Amazon Prime Instant. Let, let me ask you, Dave. Is it part of the Edge of Tomorrow cinematic universe? That's is, all I need to know. It is not. Uh, oh. Or if it is, it takes place decades before. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's actually, you know, you, you bring up a good point. It's unlike anything Doug Lyman has done before. Yeah. I think we, after Edge of Tomorrow, he probably needed to uh, retrench a little bit. I mean, he's been directing episodes of like Suits on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but Edge of Tomorrow didn't do super well at the box office. Uh, it was probably one of Tom Cruise's weaker action film openings and it cost a heck of a lot of money despite being a great film didn't open yeah. super well and so this is you know super low budget feels like a Blumhouse movie uh, and I, I think he's proven that he can he still got it is what I'm saying he still got it um, <laughs> so I'm a big Doug Lyman supporter and uh, I would recommend you check out The Wall sometime uh, when you have a chance alright what else have we been watching Devinder Hardware take it away uh, I've been checking out uh, season two of Master of None, and it continues to be amazing and one of the best things on TV. This show is so good, guys, that uh, I-, I think it makes me angry at some points that I I kind of want to make something like this at some point, and I don't know if I ever will be able to. Mm. Uh, but it's just so funny and so sweet and heartwarming and insightful about relationships and career, uh, you know, just dealing with your careers, um, you know, or around your 30s. Uh, it continues what season one did well, but I think it even uh, improves upon it in many ways. There's less of a focus on Deb's romantic life. And I think the show's best when we're not dealing with that because, uh, you know, some of that stuff is just pretty standard romantic film fare. Um, but stylistically, it really doubles down on all his like Italian and French film influences. Uh, the first episode is entirely in black and white, and it feels like an, a Fellini film or something. So it's just really, it's just really sweet. It just does everything I love. And uh, yeah, I, I wish, I, I just wish there was more. Right, this show highlights people 
and uh, careers and things that you don't normally get to see. There's an episode called I Love New York that just kind of, you know, goes through different jobs and different people working throughout the city. And it's so, like, wonderful. And it really captures everything I love about New York. And the show just keeps doing stuff like that. So, yeah, still love it. But uh, it's, it's so good, it makes me angry. How far, <laughs> how far through it did you get, Devendra? I'm about, uh, I think that was the sixth episode. So pretty, gotcha. more than halfway through. This is one of those things where my entire Twitter timeline is uh-huh. talking about the show specific plot details about the show yep. and it's just like well i'm gonna have to uh watch the show as soon as possible if i'm going to be on twitter so <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a show that's hard to spoil because it is ultimately about yeah. like relationships and stuff but yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's also so good that yeah you will want I, I, to yeah it's, it's rare that i've seen people be this you know like open about just sharing scenes they love about the show you know like I haven't seen a lot of uh, Iron Fist scenes in my Twitter timeline, you know, but people would just, people would just uh, post, like, screenshots of uh, Master of None, and I'm just like, okay, I really got to get on this. Yeah, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm so excited to, to watch this. I, I, it, it sort of snuck up on me, the release date, and um, mm-hmm. I, I'm just trying to – wife and I are trying to, like, just close out the stuff we're in the middle of, and I, I feel like it's like this – this fine bottle of wine sitting on our counter. It is. It is very – you yeah. would uh, – it's funny you say that. Because food is such a big part of this season. So, yeah, it is very much that. It is something you kind of have to just drink in, and I would recommend not binging it and just yeah. kind of take it slow. Just like I'm, appreciate I'm so all. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I love that show. Master of Done Season 2 is on Netflix right now. Devendra, what else have you been watching? I've also been watching I Love Dick. And this is the uh, Amazon show uh, created by Jill Soloway, who did Transparent. It's a new series starring Catherine Hahn as a independent film director who goes to this artist commune in Texas and becomes, I, I don't know what's the word, obsessed? I think obsessed, enamored with this character named Dick, played by Kevin Bacon. And the show's another one of those series that's sort of like an exploration of relationships and uh, creativity and things like that. And we've seen this in catastrophe and masters of none as well. Uh, but it's so, it's so different, right? It, it feels completely different too, because it's about, it's exploring all different types of sexuality, different types of relationships. Um, you know, the idea that I, yeah, I can't, won't spoil too much, but there's a lot of jealousy, but also like, how can you tap into jealousy to maybe, you spice up your own sex life and your own relationship it's a really strange show and a really just like creatively free show kind of nothing like i've ever seen before uh but i guess it reminds me a lot of transparent too like uh, what jill soloway did there was very very unique it was a very distinct voice and that's even more true here um so i'd highly recommend watching it um don't watch it with your parents but it's a really it's a really good exploration of relationships. you're telling me that when my parents are over yeah. i should not click on i love dick just a word of warning guys <laughs> yeah thanks just super helpful Devendra. super <laughs> helpful a little bit. yeah instead watch the final member the documentary about the penis museum uh <laughs> jeff so i love dick is available the whole season's available on uh, amazon.com yep. uh speaking of amazon.com jeff canada you've been watching something from amazon right I have indeed. Um, Devendra mentioned Catastrophe. I was a big fan of uh, the first two seasons of Catastrophe. Catastrophe Season 3 just premiered. Um, Catastrophe – the first season of Catastrophe, the the premise, the the reason for the title is uh, it's, it's about two people that have a one-night stand and it results in a child and it's about them uh, cobbling together a relationship after only really knowing each other for one night and it's these two very brilliant but very wry 
uh, abrasive personalities that figure out a way to sort of love each other and create a family. And the first season is really funny. It's really insightful and honest. And, and these, these, these two characters, these two main characters are so brutally honest with one, one another. But there's this like underlying sweetness and love that permeates that first season. The second season is still that. But there's less of that underlying sweetness. It is it is kind of scraping away as they, you know, it's sort of a flash forward, and we're we're with them a little farther down the road in their relationship, and things are getting a little harder to manage. And and there is, uh, I found it to be a lot meaner. It's a mean. They get to be very mean people, and every single character in the catastrophe universe is pretty mean it's, it's really yeah, it's a that, very... that was one of my issues with the show was that uh, aside from the primary two characters most of the other characters in the show feel to me like caricatures you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they're very broadly drawn and um what i thought was a weakness of season two was that these side characters who until this point have been basically cartoon characters like you're now expected to feel things for them Mm. Um, they they kind of developed the side characters a lot more in season two, and it just didn't quite work for me that well. That being said, really still enjoyed the season. Um, yeah. But uh, so, are you going to give away the premise of season three, Jeff? No. Okay. But I'm going to say that season two ends, and season three starts the exact moment season two ends. Yes. <laughs> so season two ends with kind of a cliffhangery type yep. question mark. And uh, season three – have you watched season three, Dave? I've seen the first three episodes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and season three doubles down on the darkness. It, it goes really dark, really dark, like hard to watch dark at certain times. And these characters have full-on destructive tendencies now and uh, – they are. They remain very mean to each other. Uh, there's a there's a cruelness in season three that I don't think really reared its head before. It's still wickedly funny. It's still really honest. But my God, is it dark? It goes to some places, and it ends again. Uh, it's only a six episode series. Uh, the 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 whole season is only six half hour episodes. But it ends again with a giant question mark. But this question mark, if you can believe it, is even darker than season two's question mark. Oh, man. Did they kill is, somebody? <laughs> don't, don't ask don't, don't ask don't questions ask you don't questions want to, know the you don't want to hear <laughs> the answers to. Uh, it is I, – I, I kept turning to my wife during it and going, I, this is hard to watch. Yeah. It is really dark, really dark. And um, and I I give it some credit for that because it, it's still watchable and it's still funny. But we have moved to a place where these these characters just they don't have that sweetness mm-hmm. anymore. It's completely been stripped away, and they're really in a hard place in their lives. They there's a lot of self loathing. There's a there's a very difficult just difficult place to be in their lives. And then on top of that, horrible things happen. So mm-hmm. it's um. It's a pretty interesting place that they've gone with this show, and and I'd recommend it, but it is much more difficult to watch than the first two seasons. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that's kind of why I couldn't really watch uh, Divorce very much too from the same uh, show yeah. creator. And uh, yeah, I just I hated everybody, and everything happening was kind of shitty. 
So I don't know. I did, I did find after watching these first couple catastrophe episodes, a good way to uh, to cleanse myself was to watch the new season of Chewing Gum, which is also a Netflix <laughs> and also a fun British series, but also fun and lighthearted. Yeah. And uh, what else have you been watching, Jeff? Well, I know I've mentioned it a couple of times now, but I am <laughs> thoroughly, yeah. completely, and wholeheartedly in love with The Detour. We finally finished <laughs> the second season. I It is like up there as one of my favorite uh, half-hour comedies ever. It is so I, – I am hoping TBS gives it a third season. I don't know what the odds of that are or if it did well or didn't do well. I didn't even know TBS was doing original programming like this and it was a complete surprise to me when someone recommended it. But season two is even better than season one. The the idea about of the show that it's you know a detour, uh, it started out as as what I think – seemed to be a very thin one season idea of you know them trying to get from place to place and it doesn't work out season two they went oh okay well we can't do that again so let's just go batshit crazy and fill out all these wild crazy backstories of all of our family members lives and they're just they feel untethered to uh, any kind of grounded reality it, it is fun and over the top and wildly inventive and I mean, at a certain point in season two, they get to Cuba. It is like it's it's just so funny and so smart, and and the characters. I am I love all of the characters. the 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 relationship between uh, Jason Jones and um, oh my god, what is her name? Uh, she was in Justified too. She plays a uh, uh, yeah. Oh, she's so great, dude. She's uh, she's so she she doing comedy is a revelation because Natal- I've Natalie Zia. Natalie Z, yeah. She is so good at comedy. And I don't think I've ever seen this actress who's been around a long time doing lots of really great stuff. I've never seen her do comedy like this, and she is brilliant at it. I can't recommend The Detour highly enough. It's a great series. It's great. All right, that's The Detour. It's on TBS, right? People are asking in the chat. Dan Link was asking, can you stream The Detour? How do you watch it, Jeff? You can watch it on tbs.com. You absolutely can. Yes. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. Um, well, that's what we've been watching this week. Let's move on into film news. Got a couple of film news items wanted to mention, uh, gentlemen. One is that uh, it looks like Edge of Tomorrow is getting a sequel, uh, which is something that I don't. Uh, you know, a lot of us didn't anticipate because of all that stuff I said earlier about Doug Liman. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Wait, Edge of Tomorrow isn't what it's called anymore, right? Indeed, uh, live, die, repeat. Um, but uh, according to a recent interview with Doug Liman, he says we have an amazing story. It's incredible, way better than the first film, and I obviously love the first film. It will be called Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat. I hope. Oh, I love that. Oh God, are you serious, Jeff? I love that. Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat. Come oh, yeah. on, Jeff, you want this movie to fail? That's, that's no, what I I'm don't. here. I love it. I, love yeah, I mean, this is a one. movie that uh, I I would as- assume that part of the reason it didn't do well is because of the title Edge of Tomorrow, and they're they're it giving the new film uh, the title Live Die Repeat and Repeat. I don't know how Live Die Repeat ended up being the new title. I I would have loved to be a fly in the uh, in the meeting room where that <laughs> happened because I don't know how that's better, but I guess it at least Edge describes what happens in the movie, right? How is Edge of it's, Tomorrow with such a bad title? It's not. It's a pretty bad. Like, it's, what, pretty, what it's, pretty, it's pretty vague. It? Well, okay, but vague titles abound. Like yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not vague titles. It's not, it's not as vague as Live, Die, Repeat, Jeff. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> At least that's specific. In it's, it's pretty specific about what happens in the film. <laughs> if, they had, if they had kept it with Edge of Tomorrow, the sequel could have been 
tomorrow. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they just had like bullet points. <laughs> yeah. Like this movie is about you're, live. You're, you're on the edge of tomorrow. Now you're yeah. in tomorrow, right? Yeah, it would be edge of tomorrow and then dead center in tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I'm really excited for this. I think Emily Blunt's coming back for it at least. She better, um, yeah. And I, I mean, I just loved Edge of Tomorrow so much. So did I. It was great. Such a great movie. Uh, but yeah, Tom Cruise is excited about it. Emily Blunt's excited about it. Just a question of when we'll do it. But it's not an if. It's a when. Well, the the, the, the rule is Tom Cruise can't be in anything unless it's a franchise, right? That's the rule. <laughs> he can't just make one movie and then have it be a standalone movie. That's not how he rolls. If he's starring in it, I guess right. not. Yeah. Speaking of Jeff's poor naming judgment, you know, the story broke this week that the uh, name Kylo has raced up the baby charts uh, during the year 2016. Yeah. Uh, Apparently several hundred parents named their uh, child Kylo in the year 2016. Totally misread that scene in uh, The Force Awakens. (laughs) Uh, Over the span of one year, Kylo went from the 302,000, I'm sorry, uh, 3,269th most popular name to the 901st most popular name. Uh, I want to know who, who was naming their kid Kylo before that movie. <laughs> yeah. Where did that come from? <laughs> it's like, my, I named it after my great uncle Kylo. Oh, this is really inconvenient for me. It is the fastest growing baby name in the U.S. right now. Uh, we, are, we are just terrible. See, our society deserves to be destroyed. Well, I I, so, okay, you, you know, you not, say you, every single time Devendra has brought this up in a very disparaging way. But, Jeff, you actually seriously considered naming your child Kyla. Did you know? I tried to convince my wife of it and she flatly refused me. Can you? Yeah. Tell Thank us goodness. more about this. Tell Thank us more goodness. about tell us more about this conversation. Well, at the risk of giving you TMI, uh, <laughs> my son was conceived, uh, according to my doctor, was conceived on the night that I saw The Force Awakens. <laughs> wow. I so love this I, part of the story. <laughs> I thought it, it only suitable okay. that... Uh, that I, I just don't understand. Okay, so spoilers yeah. for The Force Awakens. Okay, we're going to spoil The Force Awakens. If you haven't seen it, tune out. But I just don't understand why you choose Kylo out of all the names in that movie. I mean, it sounds cool. Kylo, Kylo is a vil- he's the villain in that film. Kylo Kanata does sound cool, but do, do you remember... Do you remember he, what he happened? does? He does murder his father no, in that film. Come on. Wait, do, do either of you think that dude's not getting <laughs> redeemed at some point? I'm uh, sure he yeah, will. But he's probably going to. By the time, by the time, little <laughs> Kylo would have been eight years old, it would everything would have been fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're taking a real big chance there, Jeff. Yeah, um, I got faith. Uh, but, but, but but I mean, why know, not? Why not like Finn or something like that? You know, like why not any of the other? Why not uh, Poe? You know, Poe Kanata? That that doesn't sound good. I mean. <laughs> I mean, you're right. It's no Kylo, but I think it's Kylo still... Kanata. It's got that. It's got that uh, it's, it's alliteration. It's got a good ring to it, but I also feel like you're dooming your child to get beat up uh, well into adulthood. Just well, like... now it would have been. You would have been like, do you know Kylo? Oh, which one? Kylo C. You know Kylo C. from the class because there's four, <laughs> four of them in there. You know. Yeah. That's what, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's quite reached that level of saturation, but you know, I understand what you're saying, Jeff. Also, okay, so it's not better. So yeah. tell us. Um, tell us about. You know what happened when you tried to convince your wife to name your child Kylo? I mean, I'm, I assume it's not a sore spot, but if it is, you know, you know, you don't have to tell us. But if if it's not, please share. Well, I, I don't know if you guys have time to for me to recount the entire conversation, but I will I will reta- recount the entire conversation. It's a, <laughs> I, I went like this: uh, Can I name him Kylo? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
uh, <laughs> I mean, I, the force is strong within this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I tried. I, 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 I thought it, I thought that was a really cool. I thought it sounded really cool, but um, yeah. You know, people are also. You know, another name that's on the I, rise. Here, here's the issue. Here's the issue of Kylo, Jeff. I think. I think the issue of Kylo is that there's no mythology that the person can construct for themselves. You know what I mean? Like, it's not. If you name someone, uh, your your son's name is Jack, correct? Yes. Yeah. So if you name Jack, he can. There's there's hundreds of Jacks throughout history, right? That they could. Sure. And maybe you named him for a specific Jack, but maybe you know he thinks of himself as more of a JFK type, and you think of himself as you think of him as more of a Jack and the Beanstalk type, or something <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but there's a mythology he can construct that that is his own. Right. If you name him Kylo, it clearly is from. Star Wars: The Force Awakens. There's you're not no wrong. Other you're not wrong. That that is that is uh, that is the the clearest and surest way I will make my son not like the Star Wars franchise. Right. You no. Know? So yeah, yeah. which no, is not it, something it, you want to do. Yes. Right. Yeah. I, I know that we. I have a, a friend who. Well, yeah. I mean, not close friend, but uh, she she named her son Anakin, uh, and he's like, I don't know, he's like sixteen or seventeen now. Um, but she named him Anakin right around the time of the uh, prequels. So, I mean, that's pretty intense. Again, what lesson taking away from the prequels? But yeah, that, I, I actually know some people who did that as well. So, it, it another another of the names that's on the rise is Cersei. Yeah, so I saw that's that. worse than Kylo, dude. If you're talking Come villains, on. people. Yeah, yeah. One of those is way more evil than the other one. Ain't no um, redemption for that chick. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, for so, Cersei mates with the Kylo. It's, it's time. <laughs> yeah. If you guys, uh, if one of you out there did name your child Kylo, write in. I want to hear uh, your story. But uh, apparently, it, it is the fastest growing name in the United States in terms of popularity. Right. Uh, now. It's got a cool sound. Do you, do you feel like you now that you know this news, Jeff? Like this is yeah. this actually broke this week. <laughs> do, do you feel like you missed the boat in some way? No, quite the opposite. I'm glad that I'm not like, like I, I would hate him to be the third Kylo in his class. I think that would be pretty lame. I, I don't think that's gonna would have happened. You know what I mean? In any case, but fair enough. I don't like I don't like trendy trendy trends. <laughs> I don't like I don't like jump on the trendy bandwagon on that stuff. And because I even even so non- you're willing to name him Kylo from, from the movie Star Wars: The Force Awakens, one of the most successful films of that <laughs> yes, year, but but I not if the- it's too trendy. I had right. the hubris to think that I was the only one that thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeff, if there's uh, anything this podcast is good for, it's trying to remove your hubris. So Yeah, well, that's for sure. But, I mean, even like, you know, popular names that have nothing to do with pop culture, uh, I was, you know, my wife would suggest a name that was very of the time, you know, and it's like, oh, I hate that. You look at those n- lists of names that are really popular and it's like, I don't want to, I don't want any of those. I, wanna, I don't know. Jack is probably pretty common, but... I didn't feel like it was a trendy common. I felt like it was sort of a classic common. Also, yeah. I named him after my dad. His name is Jack. So. There you go. Yeah. So there that's, a much, that's a much more solid. Yeah. 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 Uh, you can feel good about a Jack name. I but think. my dad is also a dark Jedi. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dylan Schwann in the chat says, please stop naming your children after characters in sci-fi and fantasy entertainment. It looks bad and you should feel bad. I don't know if I go that far. I, I guess I feel like. I've seen people say uh, – I've asked people, why did you name your child blank? And they'll say, oh, um, you know, I saw this movie and uh, one of the characters was named blank and I, I liked that character and that's mm-hmm. it. And yeah. it, just felt, it just feels like, oh, man, I feel like there should be a, a, better, a better explanation, story. you know? Well, like, I feel like you know, geeks in particular go a little hardcore too. So like it's not just I like that character. It's more like 
I love this movie. I love this franchise, and I want to like continue it within my family line. Right. But yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, tough. Yeah. yeah. Well, the name we came down to, to down to two names. Yeah. And the first one was Jack, and the second was Ben. Ooh. <laughs> I thought Very, then you get I both. So close to like yes. she didn't even she didn't even know she didn't even know what I was doing there and I got real close. Good th- good thing she doesn't listen to the slash filmcast. <laughs> no, or stand. <laughs> or next remember to me. that scene in The Force Awakens. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's good that uh, she'll never know. But yeah, no. It, <laughs> well, uh, if you have another kid, you can name him Ben, and and right. then you'll 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 sneak it in there. So right, but then I'll I won't have the whole like conceived on the. Well, who, who's to say, Jeff? It's true. There's one every year now. So. <laughs> yeah, many more. It, yeah. Uh, who, who knows how often Ben Kenobi will be mentioned in future <laughs> ones, but you it know. does it does sync right up with my annual sex act. So <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh guys, last fe- uh, this past February, Guillermo del Toro tweeted the following out. Hellboy three, sorry to report, spoke with all parties, must report that the sequel one hundred percent will not happen. And that is to be the final thing about it. Oh. Um, but it wasn't the final thing about it, was it, Dave? Well, his it was, thing. It was yeah. not the final thing about it. Boris Kitt tweeted out this week, Hellboy reboot could come sooner than you think. Producers would like to start shooting in mid-September. Uh, according to The Hollywood Reporter, uh, Larry Gordon, Lloyd Levin, and Mike Richardson are on as producers. Uh, and uh, Mignola, I don't know how you pronounce his name, but Mike That's Mignola, correct. the That's guy right. who created Hellboy, uh, is writing the screenplay. Uh, neither Del Toro or... Uh, Ron Perlman are involved in any capacity. David Harbour, the guy from um, uh, Stranger, Stranger Things, Things plays Stranger a cop in Stranger Things. He's going to uh, be in talks to play Hellboy, I believe. He has the face for it. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. Um, and over at SlashFilm.com, Jacob Hall wrote up a, a neat little story explaining how it is that Del Toro's version of the character deviated from uh, Mignola's comics. Uh, he, he talks about how the uh, original Hellboy was uh, very much a blue-collar schlub, a weary working stiff who dutifully punches in and goes to work every day, even though his work usually involves punching immortal zombie uh, – I'm sorry, Nazi warlocks and giant monsters in the face. David Harbour is genuinely inspired casting for Mignola's original version of the character. The fun of Hellboy is not that he's fighting monsters, but that fighting monsters is his job, and he's not nearly as unsettled or surprised by it as you, the reader, clearly are. Um, Hellboy is a very different character in the movies. While Perlman's performance is delightful, the wisecracking superhero with girl hangups feels very much like a Del Toro invention, an extension of his geeky, neurotic psyche wrapped in demonic muscle. So, Devinger, I think you're probably the biggest Hellboy film fan here. You know, does any of Jacob's uh, commentary on the comparison ring true to you? Do you want to see a different version of Hellboy brought to the screen that's not done by Del Toro? Well, it's tough, right? Because I have no real attachment to Hellboy in the comics form. I, I know the character and everything from what Del Toro did, and I kind of love that version. But, you know, this this is what happens to comic characters. It happens all the time. I feel like there's a bigger story about maybe Del Toro like, trying to get this done and maybe some, like, whatever discussions he was having with Magnolia just maybe just didn't work out. Hellboy 2... It's a really pretty film and a really ambitious one, but also didn't quite work for what it was. So I really like Hellboy 1. I appreciate Hellboy 2 because it's so unique. It's the sort of like weird fantasy film 
I feel like that is just tough to make. And I'm glad Del Toro got a chance to make it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I'm looking forward to seeing something new. It's, I just wish I saw more of Del Toro's. Jeff Kanata, how into Hellboy are you uh, from a comics perspective? Not very. It was never one of those ones that, that gripped me. And I never really honestly liked the movies. Um, they were fine. They were. I, I thought you know there was definitely fun yeah. stuff about them. But the first it was one never... is really good. Like there's good, really good stuff there. Yeah, I, I just it was never my thing. It was never my series, and and even the films didn't win me over completely. So I don't have much attachment here. It's fine. I guess this is going to be a rated R reboot. Which uh, okay, you know, I guess that's fine. Um, I don't know. I, this I isn't this a character movie, I get excited about. I, I think this is going to be uh, the dread of that year, the, uh, you know, the movie that stars Carl Urban, the, the reboot right. of Dread, which is to say it's going to be closer in spirit to the comics. Uh, it's going to be really – it's going to be rated R. It's going to be critically rev- revered, but the movie is going to perform terribly. That is my guess for what's going to happen with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping it will do well. But yeah, Hellboy – uh, never lit the box office on fire. I mean, the first film only did like $59 million domestically. Mm-hmm. Second film did $75 million domestically. They, they're not, they're, they didn't perform terribly, but um, they didn't exactly you know, create a 10-film franchise. Not a lot of cultural relevance on the whole Hellboy. You, you could say that. You could say <laughs> that. Um, well, I, I want to talk a little bit more about cultural relevance, but before we get to that, uh, I just want to say... Uh, one other thing I wanted to shout out during what we've been watching, and I guess I can kind of squeeze it into film news here. Um, something I watched this week was the latest episode of uh, The Leftovers. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, Dominguez, you pointed this out to me. I was going to read this anyway, but apparently The Leftovers this week was inspired by uh, a film critic and TV critic who I'm a big fan of. His name is Matt Zoller Seitz. I read his work all the time, almost every day. And it was inspired by him, and he has an interview at Vulture.com with Damon Lindelof, who's the showrunner for The Leftovers. And I don't remember what you said about it, Davidra. You said, like, this is one of the finest interactions between critic and yeah. showrunner that you've ever read before, right? Definitely one of the best, like, critical conversations yes. I've seen. Because I, it is Lindelof and him just talking, going back and forth. And Lindelof is a guy who clearly reads his critics. Like, he knows them, and, like, that opening scene season two is a direct like call out to one of the naysayers of the leftovers. Yeah. So. Uh, but I agree with you, Devendra. I thought it was one of the most powerful interviews I've ever read. Like it's one of those interviews that makes me reconsider my views on religion. You know, like that's how good it is, <laughs> you know, it, it, in terms of how thought provoking it is. Um, so I would just recommend if you, if you're, it, it almost made the leftovers worth watching until this point to read that interview. I, I mean, I don't want to overstate it too much, but it was a great interview and made me really feel like think about like, man, how, like it, it raises all the questions that basically the leftovers raises overall, mm-hmm. and does it in an interview format, which I thought was uh, pretty about cool, someone's actual life. Yeah, and, about someone's actual life. Yeah, that's right. And I've read Matt's stuff forever, and I did not know this part like he, that he had to go through this as well. So it's all. It's it's both enlightening to see like the critic like more behind the critic and I don't know his insight so yeah, yeah so, so it's we'll, a fascinating piece we'll link to it in the show notes but uh, anyway I just wanted to mention that okay uh, so speaking of cultural relevance Jeff from from a few minutes ago uh, I sent out this tweet this week and. Uh, I just wanted to mention it. Uh, here's what I said on May 14th. I said, one big benefit of uh, me insisting Avatar has no cultural relevance is anytime it appears anywhere, uh, Jeff, Devendra, and I get a tweet about it. And then I posted some images of tweets we've gotten. 
so Duncan Strip tweeted at us that he saw a big bus ad for Turok, the Cirque du Soleil Avatar show. Uh, and there's a big bus ad for it. Uh, Unaccomplish It uh, tweeted at us saying, if this doesn't make Avatar culturally relevant, then I don't know what does. And he tweeted a an image of a pinball machine with Avatar characters on it. <laughs> uh, Santino underscore Y tweets at us a, a, screensh- or a screenshot or a photo of a um, Tainan Toastmasters Club, uh, which uh, all of which dressed up in uh, Avatar costumes and, and like Navi. They're all dressed <laughs> up like Navi. And then Letterboxd, the very popular uh, movie tracking website, tweeted this week, congratulations to member Wheezy, who recorded our 100 millionth film by clicking watched on James Cameron's avatar. <laughs> and a bunch of people, including that one Blake, tweeted at us, another point for the cultural relevance of Avatar. So, you know, for, the, for listeners... And I think just, tweeting at us ironically. I just want to... Yeah, you don't know uh, that. <laughs> I don't. I don't. A lot of time, if it's the pinball game, it's more like it's like remember, remember Alf. Well, well he's back <laughs> in pog form. That's exactly what all these tweets remind me of. Wow, Devinder, Jeff just can't win with you, huh? Like no matter <laughs> how much all. support he gets for his not point, he's just Nothing. not going to win with you. Jeff, do you have any reaction to these awesome tweets that we keep getting? I think. This is indisputable proof that the war has hit the streets, guys. <laughs> in pockets. people, the people are out in force. The culture is assessing its own relevance, mm. and uh, <laughs> and it's impressive. Uh, I would like to point out the the tweet that we got mere moments before we started this recording. Yes, that warmed my heart beyond words. <laughs> uh, it was uh, oh, who's it from? Ke- I didn't Kevin see. James Craig. Who, Kevin James Craig. Who tweets us, you, here's sir. a message from my children about Avatar. He's at Pandora Land, and it, the, the video kind of pans down. I'll, I'll put the audio in the video. It's in a this slow yeah. pan, what, what, what my old director would call a slow be Arthur, yeah. to, uh, to, down to his kids. And uh, they all in unison say, oh, we should put the audio uh, in. I'm going to put the audio in. I'll put the audio in okay. the show, yeah. And they all say... Right. <laughs> it's so great it's so great yeah look what you're making the children do Jeff <laughs> yeah this is horrible Jeff this is terrible like, we need to those kids were having a great vacation until <laughs> Kevin James Craig forced them to make that video it's like you guys are not going home until you, you not... stand there and save it <laughs> can you not hear the enthusiasm in their voices though <laughs> they are into it yeah yeah yeah. Uh, <laughs> David, we have to get off our collective asses and get this trip planned. <laughs> we need to go there. Indeed, indeed. Uh, we, we need to have a Slash Filmcast meetup in Pandora. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, sponsored be, by Disney. Sponsored by Disney. Oh, my God. It would be so fun. It would be so fun. All right. We'll look into it. We'll look into it. Floating uh, rocks. <laughs> Floating Navi. rocks. Floating rocks. Animatronic Navi. Yeah. You're Six-legged really, things. I, I think you're selling it a little too hard right now, Jeff. You're selling it a little so too good. hard. <laughs> All right. We, we got some people to thank before we move on into our review today. Uh, Ma Teresa Rosario Aquina from CMTA. Herman Gill. A donation on behalf of Christ Tan from Cordova, California. Robert Smith from Ontario, Canada. Luke Crow from Brooklyn, New York. Stephen Carley from Southfield, Michigan, Margaret DeTamble, and Kenny Amaral 
from Massachusetts. Thanks so much for your donations to the Slash Filmcast. Thanks also to Dale Jen, Duncan Leishman, Malachi McGee, Christopher Angelis for their subscriptions at the rate of $2 per month. If you want to support what we do here on the podcast and defray the cost of seeing movies and putting on the show, go to SlashFilm.com, click on the Slash Filmcast tab, and use the PayPal links on the side of the page. You can also go to PayPal.me slash Filmcast. That's PayPal.me slash Filmcast. Really appreciate everyone's support as usual. All right, guys, let's move on to this week's Slash Film Court. The Slash Film Court is the quasi-weekly segment where we adjudicate your film-related dilemmas. You can always email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com or slashfilmcourt at gmail.com. They'll both get to me. This email comes in from Mike B. Please let us know where you're from when you're writing in. Mike B. writes in, Some necessary context about me. I am quadriplegic and I pay people to work overnight for me. This usually means whoever is here is watching TV in my room with me. So here's my dilemma. I just hired a new girl who told me she gets creeped out easily and doesn't like horror films, but I've heard a lot of people say that, so it didn't really faze me. Um, For the record, I made clear to her she's not obligated to watch what I'm watching and could leave the room whenever she wanted. So the other night, I decided to re-watch VHS, which she stayed in the room for and watched with me. She watched the whole thing quietly, no screaming or audible reaction of any kind. After the film, she informed me that she had cried actual tears ten or so times while we were watching, which I didn't notice. It turns out she has some involuntary reaction to scary movies where she apparently cries real tears and always has. I was shocked to hear this, and yes, I felt a little bad. Uh, so to balance it out, we watched Kubo and the Two Strings immediately afterwards. Aww. Again, to be clear, she did not get angry or say that she experienced any physical discomfort. She even said she didn't know why it happens. It just does. My question is if you think I should still watch horror films with her as a means of potentially curing her of this condition or if this will just make her worse. <laughs> I feel like I could be doing her a favor and preparing her for the horrors of real life, even though she's already 25, but maybe not. I'm not a psychologist. (laughs) (laughs) I like that qualifier at the end. So I actually emailed in – I I emailed – responded to Mike, and I asked him some follow-up questions uh, because I said, you know, we'll adjudicate this. But uh, I asked him, has it been made 100% clear to the person taking care of you that you are under no obligation to watch stuff? uh, They're under no obligation to watch stuff with you? And then I also said – can you disclose how much or a range of how much you pay these people? I could see the answer being different for someone you pay $12 per hour versus someone you pay $40 per hour, if that makes sense. And he, he responds back, uh, yes, I have said explicitly she does not need to be in the room at all times, especially if she has homework or something she needs to get done. Although I have been totally clear on this, I can't speak to any sense of obligation she might feel being a new employee and wanting to be nearby at all times. On the second point, however, she isn't nervous around me like she's afraid of losing her job, and I make a point of trying to make new people feel comfortable, so I don't think that's it. Money-wise, I pay people $80 per night, and she gets $14 per hour wherever she wor- whenever she works uh, normal hours during the day. Overnights are different because most of it is spent sleeping or fast-forwarding through commercials. It's pretty non-taxing. So... That email comes from Mike. It's clarification for this slash film court. The question is, should Mike continue watching these horror films even if there is a woman that he is paying to sit near him uh, who (laughs) cries involuntary tears as a result of watching horror films? I actually know people who are maybe especially empathetic and they tend to freak out 
over horror right, movies. Right, like if you see and, someone get yeah. tortured or killed, you know, yeah, yeah. You, it upsets you. You start to right? feel it. And I, th- I think that's partially what's going on here. So that is tough. This is, this is really tough. It is tough. tough. It is tough because, as you kind of indicated, Dave, that there's a – no matter how much you tell someone who is ostensibly – not even ostensibly, who's legitimately your employee – no matter how much you tell them that they have autonomy and can yeah. make the decision on their own, there is a feeling that may persist that they can't, right? They can't mm-hmm. actually make a the decision that they would that would make them feel the most comfortable because they are not they are not completely autonomous in that moment. Um, mm-hmm. So I think he's done the right thing here, you know, and it's certainly if you're paying somebody to be around you shouldn't i mean you (laughs) they are doing you a service right so you are no obligation to change your behavior although it's you know i don't know it's it's a tough thing i have we have a nanny that comes uh you know three days a week to, to watch my son while we work and i often find myself not doing things that i would do if she were right. here and I feel like I feel dumb. My wife is always like, "You're we're paying her to be here. Do what you need to do." And I'm like, "I'm not going to go out in the living room and play video games while she's in my underwear, my kid." Yeah, <laughs> um, she like, feels weird. It's like it's my job <laughs> right. to play video games, and I would be doing my job, but I still feel weird. Like, hey, take yeah, care of my yeah. kid while I play video games. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, AKA living the dream, Jeff. Yeah, that's, that's how much <laughs> high roller you are, Jeff. Come on, live it up. Yeah. Uh, but in this example, I do also wonder if it's uh, partially. Does it feel like he's making a not great work environment for her either? Like, if she is physically crying, yeah, I, I while guess she's my, watching my these question things? is like, yeah. do you need to watch horror films at night? Like, yeah, can't I, you watch? Can't you watch other films at night exactly. and then watch horror films during the day? You know, like it's that's, well, that's when you watch better. horror films. What do you want to watch horror films at daytime for? <laughs> okay, oh, I that's guess great. I guess that's true. Um, yeah, maybe but, watch but horror films when she's not around. Is what I'm saying. Like, you, yeah, well, but that's what I'm saying. Better like, you're paying you. somebody. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have to – I mean that's kind of how I feel too with the nanny. It's like – but he's paying her to be there and he told her flat out she doesn't have to sit through right. it. So he's kind of met his obligation I think. Yeah, yeah. I think you're probably but, right about that, Jeff. The thing is it's better for you as well because you can't fully enjoy – like if you take somebody to see a movie and you know they're not into like horror movies or something, part part of you will not be able to fully get into the movie because you're like, oh, it's, how are they feeling? How are they doing? What's going on here? And I do like that's partially why I kind of like going and seeing movies on my own sometimes, especially like really weird artistic stuff, because I don't have to worry about how it's affecting somebody else close to me, you know. So, yeah, avoiding them. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I think we're missing the more pertinent question here, though, which is, (laughs) can he fix her? Yeah, yeah, I don't think you should try and do some like aversion therapy or whatever the hell this is. That sounds like, like torture. Like, don't, don't take Tonight's on the role. Hostile. <laughs> Salo, right. a hundred days of Sodom. You know, like it just don't, don't try and fix someone using them. Like, if you want to watch the movie and you're paying this person to, you know, kind of stay there with you, that's fine. But don't, don't think that you're doing them a favor. I guess misery. I yeah. <laughs> Do you, do, you agree, do you agree, Jeff? Yeah, I think I think it's funny that he even went there of like maybe if I plan a horror movie, she'll be super into horror movies and it won't, <laughs> won't cause her involuntary weeping. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think the uh, I think his sensitivity is is laudable, and I think you what the way you approach this is you say, "Hey, 
I really want to watch this movie. It's a horror movie. I want to reiterate that you are under no obligation to stay in the room. I saw that it upset you last time. I don't want to. My intention is not to upset you, but if you want to have a backbone and a spine, you should stay in the room and watch this movie. I, I think the reason I asked how much uh, this person has paid is because I, I do feel like if you're if you're paying something like fifty dollars an hour, then in my opinion. You can watch, you know, whatever you want. Like, you know, like <laughs> there's a price on on uh, the torment that you're willing to put somebody through. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And then if it if this person's making, you know, slightly above minimum wage, then they they may not be able to just like piss you off and or and or quit. You know what I'm saying? Like they they might not have as many options as someone who's you know making that much money. And so therefore, I, I would say you should be more sensitive to that person's. Uh, desire to not be bombarded with horrifying images, but you know, it's. I, I think. I think, Jeff, you're right. You paid for this service. You've made it clear that uh, you don't need to stick around. So I would say, in the in the case of this slash film court, I, I would say we rule not guilty. Right? Like this person definitely is doing fine. Mike is doing fine. Um, and don't try to fix anybody though. Don't try to fix anyone though. Exactly. That does not work with horror movies. It doesn't work in relationships either. Uh, just stay the course and respect people's preferences. All right. Thanks for writing in. You can always write in to us at slash film court or slash film cast at gmail.com and we will adjudicate your movie related dilemmas. Let's move on. Wait, Dave, before we do, yep. is this the first episode we've recorded since you've become engaged? It is. Well, it we is. have to take a second and congratulate you for that. Yes. That's huge. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, Davindra met my fiance. He was uh, Davindra was here in Seattle recently. Met my fiance. Yes, I can confirm she's real. <laughs> what <laughs> exists? She, she is. She is real and a human. Um, wow. So two bonuses. And she um, seems very nice. So yes. congrats, Dave. Thanks. Appreciate that, guys. Um, and uh, and you guys are invited to the wedding. So that'll be fun. Thanks. He's not just talking to us. He's talking to all of the No, listeners. no, just, just you two. <laughs> yeah. Get uh, ready, folks. We pro- we'll probably live stream, maybe do some live podcasting from there. We'll see. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's move on to our review of King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Now tell me story. Tell me every detail. From where? From a nightmare. What was it about? Then? Then, me and the lads took care of their business. Hold up, hold up, back up. You've left something out. Are you writing a book? They all lived happily ever after. No, they didn't ever. Because for the first time, there's something you don't know. Something nobody told you. That was from the trailer of King Arthur, The Legend of the Sword. The new film by director Guy Ritchie uh, and Joby Harold and Guy Ritchie wrote the screenplay for this movie. It stars Charlie Hunnam, Astrid Burgess Frisbee, Jude Law, Jimon Hunsu, Eric Bana, Aidan Gillen, a bunch of other really talented people. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. Robbed of his birthright, Arthur comes up the hard way in the back alleys of the city, but once he pulls the sword from the stone, he is forced to acknowledge his true legacy, whether he likes it or not. Uh, this movie is a catastrophe on every <laughs> level. F- fiasco could be perhaps be the a term. catastrophe of legendary proportions. 
It underwent uh, multiple title changes, multiple release dates, uh, multiple rewrites and reshoots, and uh, it made $14 million at the box office this weekend. Uh, <laughs> that is very bad for a movie that theoretically cost around, I think, like $175 million to, uh, to produce. It, it feels like they had a complete, like, not only does it feel, they, they in fact, had a completely different movie. Uh, including the fact that the actress who played, uh, Ash- like the mage, the actress who played the mage, Astrid Burgess Frisbee, apparently used to be Guinevere in a previous version of the film. Which would so, make more sense, to be yes, quite honest. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but her, uh, her name is just the mage. <laughs> that's correct. Right? In in the movie, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so underwent a lot of changes. Uh, over at Forbes, Scott Mendelson has a pretty great piece entitled Seven Reasons Why King Arthur Bombed. Uh, and he kind of runs down the, the seven reasons why this movie did really badly. The one that resonates most with me is this one right here. Number five, just because audiences have heard of a property doesn't mean they crave a big budget movie version. Just because folks have heard of a character or remember the first movie in a given series doesn't mean they crave a new cinematic version of said character or a sequel to said original. Um, King Arthur has never really been box office dynamite. Think of First Night, Quest for Camelot, King Arthur, all bombed or disappointed. Excalibur was a hit in 1981, but that was at a time when movies on the scale of Excalibur were true events. Mm -hmm. Even Monty Python and the Holy Grail wasn't exactly a box office juggernaut back in 1975. Um, So uh, that's... Uh, Scott Mendelson's assessment of why this movie didn't do very well, and I, I don't know why movie studios keep returning to the story. It's not like this movie, this, you know, this story has done super well in the past. Well, because it's, it's free. It's a free it's story. A free, it's been the public that. domain. Yeah, it's it's yeah. free. It has some awareness. And, and yeah. Game of Thrones is a thing. Yeah. yeah. That's this has it. thrones in it. It has and games. It has sort of swords. Like Lord of the Rings, too. Yeah. Like, it's, it's all those things. It's, yeah, ill-conceived. Yeah. Um, so this movie's going to struggle to make it to like $40, 50000000 million domestically. Devinder, I bet you're really regretting putting this in your Dark Horses, huh? <laughs> With Summer Movie Wager? Well, I'm currently leading right now, so. Oh, that's right. <laughs> if we were to end today. Lead. For this yeah. whole week. Yeah. yeah. I'm De- leading. Devinder is in the lead at the summermoviewager.com. With my single point from this movie. <laughs> I don't think the problem with this movie, though, is the source material. No. It could be done. Like, have you guys seen Excalibur? Yeah. And yeah. heck, man, one of my favorite Disney movies is The Sword in the Stone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a cool – dude, the story of Excalibur, the story of the Knights of the Round Table, the story of Sir Galahad and mm-hmm. the story of Merlin, all of that stuff is great source it's, it's material. Like, it's classic hero's journey. That's, I yeah. think that's partially why we keep going back to it too. Um, I, I, if you guys remember the Gargoyles animated series, that had like a great – like it was all tied into this mythology. I love that. I kind of just love – the and this is an ancient sort of story too, right? You're not ancient but very, very old. And I like classic. the way we retell old stories. Um, so just on a mythological level, I kind of like the source material. Uh, but yeah, um, instead of seeing this movie, if you have not seen John Borman's Excalibur – Go fucking see that movie because it's fantastic. I love it. I revisit it like every at least once a year. It is much more of a slow burn, but it's like a beautiful operatic version of this and like has so many people in it. Uh, Helen Mirren's in it looking looking young and very hot. Gabriel Byrne, Patrick Stewart, I think in uh, some of their first screen roles too. So just go check that out. But yeah, 
As for this movie, uh, I was the one who was excited to review it <laughs> because to be fair, I, I was excited as well. Like I, I yeah, I, I'm I'm a Guy Ritchie fan. You guys know I like those Sherlock yes. movies more so than us. Yeah, I was yeah. I was just really down because of Man from Uncle and how how freaking great that movie was. Like I've seen that movie at least half a dozen times. I try to show it to as many people as possible. I just love everything about it, and I've realized that I'm just kind of I'm hot and cold on Guy Ritchie as a filmmaker. There are some things I love. Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, Snatch. My first DVD of Snatch, uh, I broke it. I watched it so many times, it developed a crack in the middle of the disc. And he just has this energy of filmmaking that works really well sometimes. And then sometimes it's just like completely off base. And uh, like, the Rock, Sherlock Rock stuff, and Rolla was pretty terrible. Even though it, it was one of his better performing films, but yeah. it was a pretty terrible film in my opinion. It's kind of ambitious, but I love uh, – well, so like his uh, – it just seems like he's chasing franchises right now, right? Sherlock was a franchise for him, worked out really well. I think Man from Uncle, the idea was to turn that into a franchise. And apparently the new meme is that uh, he's very surprised that some people actually like it. Um, that was kind of hilarious too. If you go back uh, – uh, there are a couple interviews out there where former Slashville member Angie Han and her obsession with it were directly like uh, yeah, reference, referred, yeah, yeah, reference, and that was all just kind of funny because I love that movie. But then we come to this, and I really was down seeing like what a cool, I don't know, anachronistic version of the King Arthur would be with Guy Ritchie, and half of this movie is that. Half of this movie is just like gorgeous visuals and like so much style and like i don't even care if the plot really connects if like it's just all really cool and really stylistic uh there's stuff in this movie that i think is just really interesting and well done like the giant freaking elephants and just like what that battle looks like and then there's the other half of the movie which is like a slug of like yeah they didn't know how to clearly this movie was rewritten clearly things were chopped up because it just feels like people running from place to place for no particular reason uh, Jeff Kanata, your thoughts on the new King Arthur movie? Yeah, uh, this movie is Guy Ritchie as fuck. Um, and <laughs> that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. I think DaVinci uses a very interesting word, uh, anachronistic. And I, I have a big, big problem with his style when it's laid onto these period pieces. I had a problem with it with Sherlock Holmes. I have a problem with it here. Uh, I I never, ever, ever, ever at any point during this movie think that I'm watching uh, Arthurian legend times. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, never... but I don't know if you're supposed to, right? You're I mean, not? Even for the opening scene. Dude, it's very, that, like, yeah, scene, you're, watching, that... you're watching Lord of the Rings, man. You're not watching historical but whatever England. Lord of the Rings, the, the, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy felt like I was looking at a real place. Like mm-hmm. the, all, the, the, all the actors felt – like they were grounded in that universe and it felt like it could have existed. And I never thought that about this movie and it's because of his style. It is so Mm -hmm. contemporary. Um, But honestly, I don't have a big problem with this movie. I don't think it's terrible at all. I think there's a lot of stuff that's actually pretty good in it. Mm -hmm. That first sequence, the first sort of pre-title sequence, it's like a 10-minute long action sequence where it feels like we just got dropped into the climax of a different movie. We got we got dropped into like the yeah. coolest end of of some prequel to this movie and it is balls to the wall awesome. The the just the the pure kineticism of the battle and the the size and scope and scale of everything 
it's I was like, oh, I'm in. This is amazing. <laughs> I am so in for this. And Eric Bana was working. It's like well, jumping Eric, onto elephants and shit, man. That was bad, dude. That was red. And then Eric Bana goes away for the rest of the movie, and it's like, oh, well, I liked him. Uh, this kid that they got playing King Arthur though feels, you know, does not feel of that world. He, he feels like this very modern young person that doesn't belong in that. He's wearing dress up. He's playing dress up, right? You mean Charlie Hunnam? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, I mean, he's been around. I mean, it, it is kind of funny how, I guess, we've, he's been in a bunch of things. He's been in Children of Men, started in Sons of Anarchy, you know. Lost City of Z. Lost City. Well, Lost. it is funny, too, that Lost City of Z is a nice, like, mature adventure film with him as the lead, and he's fantastic in it. And then he's in this, which is the complete opposite of The Lost City of Z. Uh, and yeah, much, much worse. Anyway, I'm not as down on this as it sound like sounds like right, you guys right, right. are. I think this movie does have big problems and mm-hmm. but it's it's watchable. It's there's some fun stuff. It's got a it's got a lot of uh, a big amazing moments. It's got a lot of kind of stupid things that happen as well and and it's overlong and some of the sequences don't quite make sense, but I, you know, there is enough fun Guy Ritchie stuff where, mm-hmm. you know, these these crazy ramps. There are sequences in this movie that are like what an entire film would be, but he does as a montage of film <laughs> ramps. And yes. he's like he conveys an entire trilogy worth of story in like 28 seconds of <laughs> – like just the, yeah. how you even do that is – it's impressive. There's impressive stuff and there are ac- action sequences that are impressive. I – left the theater after seeing this thinking, you know, if this movie came out when I was a kid, before we were just a swath in in genre, as genres everywhere, right? Everything is sword and sorcery, everything is effects, everything is giant high fantasy. But when I was a kid, when you couldn't get high fantasy, yeah. you know, the 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 spectacle of this and the commitment to creating these insane visuals that that are on display in this movie it's like it sucks to me that that is blasé now and it's just – it's in service of a pretty flat story and, and flat characters and how you can make a King Arthur movie where Merlin doesn't show up and people are like, yeah, Merlin's off stage the whole time. It's cool. I thought he was going to be a big character reveal or something, but no. Well, it's, guys, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean this movie represents the worst aspects of blockbuster filmmaking today. Mm-hmm. I mean everything people hate – about blockbuster filmmaking is in this movie. And I'm referring to things such as... Jude uh, Law. <laughs> oh, oh. I thought Jude Law was fine in this movie. Yeah, I'm, was... I'm referring to like, uh, you know, rapid cuts that render uh, action scenes incomprehensible. Uh, side characters like Merlin who are introduced clearly just to set up future films. Um, speed ramping in action scenes. Overly, like overuse of CG in a way that's not... Uh, authentic looking that looks really fake. I mean, uh, I, I saw this movie with a, a couple friends. One of them compared it to the Burly Brawl in Matrix Reloaded, and, yeah. and like literally that level of technology, which was quite a while ago. <laughs> it's um, like the next level of the three hundred kind of CGI'd action scenes, too. Yeah, I I will say that uh, I thought this movie was terrible, but it was so bad that it was almost good. You know, like <laughs> it, it was so bad that I almost came out on the other side and kind of enjoyed it. Um, uh, the opening scene I thought was great. I, yeah. I was so in after that opening scene. You got mm-hmm. 
ginormous elephants and wizards and mages using magic and and the way the super man- magic. That magic was visualized, how people would just sort of like explode. Yeah, they vaporize and stuff. It's oh, just it so amazing. cool. And then the movie never hits that level of excitement ever. Yeah. In the then they start talking. That was the problem. It's not It's not a great script. And they didn't know how to like lead people to specific places. The, the but, character uh, development yeah. is laughable in this film. Yeah. Like, characters do things with no – you have no understanding of why they yeah. do it. And then the movie never explains it later. Uh, the, the actor who I referred to earlier, Astrid Burgess Frisbee, mm-hmm. who plays the mage in this movie. Apparently, she used to play Guinevere. Uh, well, the character, character technically is Guinevere. And sure. I think they just just never referred to her as that. Fair enough. Uh, that character is a disaster in, in every, <laughs> in every, uh, on every level. In terms of conception, in terms of execution, I mean, she just goes up and states exposition in this kind of mm-hmm. deadened, uh, this dead, dead voice that she has. You know, like, did you see what you needed to see? You know, like literally the way I delivered it just now. Yeah. And she spends is, half the movie like chanting or something, or like with the uh, the the witch eyes or something. It's. Uh... Not good. And Once the, there's you have like a romance. The sword, you must seize the sword. You know, it's it's just so. <laughs> it's terrible. like an SNL skit version of what a wizard character would be in yeah. a movie like this. So, awful. and there's a romance that pops up that is just not even there. Like they clearly cut out those scenes, and you jump to a point where they're introduced and they're in love, or he's in love. It's all just so weird and dumb. Yeah, uh, you know. and, and most importantly, I think the central character journey is very boring. Uh, I mean, the, the central character journey is all about will he or won't he? Will King mm-hmm. Arthur seize uh, his true destiny and, his godlike powers. And, become, you know, and, and ascend to the throne and you know, uses his, his sword to, to kill people and do things that are good? And that is just a very uninteresting arc. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly rendered uninterestingly in the film. Like, uh, the whole time I just kept thinking to myself, like, why don't you just... <laughs> You know, why don't you just do it? You know, like, do the thing. Do it's kind of, it's kind of, it's it reminded me of Hamlet, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, no, very similar. Like uh, in Hamlet, yeah, that piece of garbage. <laughs> no, but I mean, Hamlet's arc in that movie, he's fundamentally like an unlikable character, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where uh, he he's just it, like wish His his, his, his uh, uncle has killed his father and taken his place. Sound familiar? And uh, and he's yeah, wishy washy. He's like not sure. Yeah. What should I do? What should I do? I don't know what to do. Um, but the thing with Hamlet is the language is so ridiculously amazing. It's some of the best yeah. English that's ever been written in human history. This is not that, unfortunately. To kick ass <laughs> or not to kick ass? Uh, <laughs> that's that is, the question. That is yeah. the question, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, um, so uh, this movie was bad, and <laughs> uh, I, it, I'm, it actually gives me some hope that it didn't do well at the box office because people still recognize, like, hey – um, I sh- we should not go waste our money and time on bad movies. Like the collective unconscious was just like, nope, yep. not this one. Uh, Jeff, it's kind of funny that I, I, you're the one that likes it the most. I did enjoy quite a bit of it. And I think I definitely enjoy seeing a super cut of all the cool parts of this movie at some point. Uh, it would be a very good home theater demo, I think. Um, but I think the anachronistic stuff is part of what I really enjoy, too. Like Jude Law is just like a fucking – he's a pissed off rock star. And the way he just sits on that throne – it's kind of and both of them actually and the way Charlie Hunnam plays Arthur he's you know they're they're just like very punk it's very different um and I kind of enjoy seeing that in my high fantasy too uh guys, but yeah guys uh, a couple weeks ago on the slash filmcast I went on an extended rant 
about what it was like to see Chris Angel in, in live <laughs> performance. Yes. There is a scene in this movie where Jude Law is like holding a uh, fireball in his hand. And yeah. uh, that is exactly – now imagine that scene. Very mind freak. That scene, but 90 minutes long and you paid $70 for it. <laughs> that, that, Sign is me Chris, up. that is Chris Angel's mind freak. But you like that. No, I hate it. You weren't here for the After Dark Divinity, but it was very bad. <laughs> it was very bad. Uh, do we need uh, spoilers for this? What do, what do we think? I mean, I have some things I would say. Yeah, I don't let's, care if let's talk spoiled. about spoilers. Yeah. So, spoilers for King Arthur, The Legend of the Sword, starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Trying to see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. We should mention, by the way, uh, Devendra, Daniel Pemberton wrote the score for yes. this movie. And, I, I really uh, like the score. It's yeah. good. The score the is good. good. I don't know if Daniel I listen Pemberton to it by just... itself, but it's mm-hmm. it uses human breath a lot to kind of create tension and momentum, and uh, it's very enjoyable. So I really yeah. well. So Daniel Pemberton, he did also did the Man from Uncle score, which is fantastic. Yeah. He did the score great, for Steve Jobs. Great. Score. I love everything this guy is doing recently. Yeah. I, the the scene that bothered me the most is it's an odd one, but. I am baffled as to why it was rendered the way it was. There is a scene where our hero, Arthur, uh, has, has been taken along with all of the other boys of a certain age and asked to go and try to pull the sword from the stone to mm-hmm. find out who is the chosen one. And they're all in a line. And our hero, Arthur, decides he's too good for lines. <laughs> <laughs> I like that that's like, <laughs> that's like the roguish thing that he did. I, I do not understand why. What does him deciding that he's just going to walk to the front of the line supposed to tell us about that character that makes him likable in any way? Like the way that yeah. scene should be written is he's doesn't think he's special. He's waits in line like everybody else. They walk. There's a guy maybe ahead of him who makes the sword move a little bit. And so we see that guy get slaughtered immediately. And there's some tension now. And he walks up and he expects it to not work. And he pulls the sword out. Instead, he fucking like cocksure walks up to the thing like, <laughs> where do you want me to be? I'm awesome. Here we go. <laughs> it is the stupidest way I could possibly imagine to have that scene play out. It felt yeah. like it felt like a different version of that character from a different script. It really yeah. did. It also feels like, hey, hey, guys, we got a movie to move on here. Like, I need some motivation. Gotta, I got to <laughs> move the plot along. Just like, who just put all the these along. extras out here? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, guys. Sorry. I, I uh, think, he's, he's, he's also dressed in white. He's the only one dressed in white in that scene, and when he's captured too, subtle sorry. symbolism. He's going to stand out a little. I don't understand why they even. Like, he was running away from that fight, and they're like, well, you're not suspicious at all. We're just going to bring you to the sword for some reason. <laughs> I, I the know. thing I, I, I have never seen the a cooler explanation for what the stone is. Yeah, that was great. That was good. Clever. Clever. Mm-hmm. That it was just Eric Bana's body. It's your dad. <laughs> <laughs> it's your fucking dad. You should go back to that statue and say, pay your respects, son. Yeah. I, don't know. I, I like the, uh, the weird squid monster. That uh, Jude Law ends up uh, sacrificing his entire family to. Yeah, the design on that character I thought was really nice and creepy. Super I dug creepy. that. There, there's some nice elements in the film. You know, it's not that the yeah. film was a 
No, it was pretty bad. But I mean, it's not. It's it's not that there's no redeeming qualities to the film, right? Why does uh, Jude Law turn into a Dark Souls boss at the end of the movie? <laughs> That's a good question. Here's another question: um, Why introduce a snake as a Deus Ex Machina? <laughs> <laughs> just comes out of nowhere. You know, yeah. no Why setup. not use the snake the whole time? You <laughs> solved this problem a lot earlier. It's like the uh, it's like the eagles at the end of the Lord of the Rings. Why? Right. Yeah. Why not just? Uh, <laughs> I just it took him a snake, while to get there. Snakes this whole thing. It took him a while to slither up there. That's all. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of <laughs> stupid stuff. You guys are kind of convincing yeah. me that I didn't like it as much as I thought I did. <laughs> I do have to say, I'm a big fan of the uh, Guy Ritchie, like, sort of talking about something and then fast forward, like, rewinding to how that thing yeah. happened. I'm a well, big fan a of, that. of that. People delivering, that. People delivering exposition, and then yes. when they're delivering exposition, he's yeah. showing you what actually happened, or sometimes what With has like yet nice, to happen in the future. Yes. Right? It's With like the nice lock, stock, and, and, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, I dig it. I think that's. I'm a big fan of that. This movie does that way too much. Like, that's the thing. It did it so much <laughs> that I was like, man, I. I it's too much of what I want. It's like a, it's like popcorn that's too big, and you're forced to eat it. I, I don't know. Well, I think it's it's like what what does it serve? You know why why is it like that? And there's often no reason for it to be like that. You know that's yeah. I agree. It's, I, it's, it doesn't serve the themes of the story for it to be hyper edited. You know. Yeah. Right. Um, I agree. It's a flourish in need of a reason. But I think like what I guess what really bothered me fundamentally about the King Arthur character is just that. You know, all these people die during that scene uh, in in the in the city when the people are like getting attacked and with all the the sky flares and stuff. And, that was cool, though. I love. And then he pulls out the sword and kills everyone, right? Yes. And that's a pretty cool moment. But then he still has debates about whether he should become the one. It's like, dude, if you'd just done that yeah. ten minutes earlier, you could have saved a bunch of lives. And you're still debating whether or not yeah. you should do this thing. Yeah, no. The the scene where he casts Excalibur into the sea comes out of nowhere <laughs> like it seems like the worst decision he could possibly come to it's like we are on the edge of des- destruction i'm gonna throw the one super weapon we have <laughs> into the sea it's yeah. a parody of a hero's journey scene it's just like uh, I, c- I i don't know if i can do this and yeah not put together well that moment after he first uses excalibur's power i thought was really well done where everyone's just like what yeah that was pretty it was a pretty cool moment pretty cool moment yeah I also like the idea of those sky flares. Like, I don't know yes. if that's actually a thing that happened in uh, <laughs> whenever in, King Arthur in was around. Fantasy history <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with their drone cameras, or um, that whole scene was shot really well too as a chase scene. Like, I love the overhead photography, and there was clearly some like uh, handheld stuff on them to shoot yeah, like, like the chest, GoPro type chest strapped stuff. cameras and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, I I dug the, that's totally anachronistic, but I kind of dug how all that came together too. Anything else we have to say about this film, gentlemen? <laughs> Go see Excalibur. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's unfortunate, and it's clearly trying to set up a sequel. It's like, well, look, the the, the round table's almost finished, everybody. <laughs> it's so yeah, sad. I I agree. I mean, some talented people worked on this movie, and they clearly worked really hard. And it's just a bummer to see. You, know, you just you know so many things affect how well a movie does, right? The rewrites, the reshoots, the script, the the actors, the concept, the marketing, whether people actually have an appetite for this. And in this case, the, all the things swung against this movie. So yeah. Well, those are our thoughts on King Arthur: Legend of the Sword. Uh, stay tuned to hear what we'll be reviewing next time. In the meantime, find more episodes of our podcast slash filmcast.com. Email us 
at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song is from adamwarrock.com. Our uh, spoiler bumper is from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. And our Slash from Court music is from simonmharris.com. Jeff Canada, where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? We just recently had a, uh, a thing on our Facebook group for We Have Concerns where people talked about why they found that podcast and how they started listening to it. And there were a lot of people that said they heard about it through the Slash Filmcast. So nice. if you're one of those people that are listening right now and haven't given my comedy show We Have Concerns a shot, why don't you do that? It's only 20-minute episodes. I think you'll find them very fun and funny. And you might learn something too. Uh, you can find that at wehaveconcerns.com. I also do two video game shows. One of them is called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. That's once a week. I also do a daily gaming update show where you get 10 minutes of gaming content every single day. You can find that at anchor.fm slash NLB, which stands for newest, latest, best. How about you, Devendra? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Devendra and I read about tech and gadget.com. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.net. Next week, we'll be reviewing Alien Covenant. Lots to discuss. <laughs> I would recommend uh, that you watch Prometheus before yes. you see yes. Alien Covenant. I agree. Even yeah. though I hated Prometheus, you really sh- I kicked myself for not rewatching it. Yeah, definitely worth checking out again. And there's like interstitial stuff too, like the prologue clips. We should probably watch those too. Yeah. All right. Um, well, we'll see you next week on the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. We watch the movies, flicks, tracks for the good, slash bad, it's the Slash Film Cast. For all the news and the movies coming out, cause you know that it's the thing worth talking about. Welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark, uh, the time of the show where we talk about a variety of random topics that didn't make it into the show, not necessarily anything that's going to be of interest to anyone, so... Uh, feel free to tune out now if you want to. They already have. They already have. They're gone. <laughs> no one's listening at this point. Uh, no one's listening. So anyway, guys, uh, here's something that we didn't mention. Uh, there was a big, a big hullabaloo this past week. Uh, two films produced by Netflix were curated to play at the 2017 Cannes Film Festival. Oh, yeah. A decision that sent shockwaves through the exhibition community, resulting in a new rule that may prevent the streaming company from appearing at the festival in future competitions. No Netflix is allowed. They just put a big <laughs> sign up. Um, Netflix, you know, here, Peter wrote this article over at SlashFilm.com. Netflix does not always distribute their movie in theaters, but they're not opposed to a day and date release where films at theaters and streaming service at the, t- at the same time, like the upcoming film War Machine. However, most movie theaters are not interested in a non-exclusive theatrical window. Cannes had hoped to convince Netflix to release both of its competition titles in theaters in France before they go online to appease the angry French exhibition industry. But the streaming giant has been unwilling to make a deal that would give exhibitors a a window between theatrical and online release. Yes, Jeff, what were you going to say? The angry French exhibition industry. That is a a turn of phrase. You do not want to anger the French exhibition industry. (laughs) It sounds like an industry that makes angry French expositions. Exhibition. Exhibition. Excuse Um, me. Excuse me. But uh, Netflix suggested it would consider a limited French theatrical release for both films if they didn't have to comply with the country's strict window – uh, they, uh, the VP of acquisition, Robert Roy, explained they are definitely not anti-theater, but we are anti-theatrical window. We can go day and day, and theaters are willing to distribute the movie at the same time that we put up in the platform. We are definitely open to those kinds of conversation. 
But in response, Cannes has introduced a new rule which will begin next year. Only films that have theatrical distribution in France will be accepted in uh, competition. Quote, the festival is pleased to welcome a new operator which has decided to invest in cinema but wants to reiterate its support to the traditional mode of exhibition of cinema in France and in the world. End quote. So, uh, Reed Hastings... CEO of Netflix, not super happy with this. Um, he's saying, like, amazing film. Uh, like, ok- Okja, right? The new... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Bong, is that Bong Joon-ho that did Okja? Yep. Yep. Uh, he, he's saying, uh, amazing film that theater chains want to block us from entering into the Cannes film uh, competition. So, lots going on about what defines a film. Uh, it's, a ver- it's a time of very heavy uncertainty. It's tough, uh, but you know what? That is a freaking like amazing looking Bong Joon Ho movie, and it deserves to be in theaters for a little <laughs> while to let people see it in theaters. So I, it's rough. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a tough call. Yeah, uh, this reminds me of this piece that David Ehrlich wrote at IndieWire uh, that I responded to over on my blog, DaveChen.net, uh, about how like basically a movie getting uh, on Netflix is the kiss of death. Uh, David Ehrlich, writing for IndieWire, had, had an article called Netflix Keeps Buying Great Movies, So It's a Shame They're Getting Buried. This is April of 2017. And he runs down a couple of indie films, including a movie that we reviewed on the podcast, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Such uh, a great movie. That, uh, you know, mm-hmm. just you, they, they basically have done almost no marketing for them, right? I mean, you wouldn't know about them except for some PR on movie sites such as SlashFilm.com. And uh, here's what Ehrlich says. I don't know if Netflix has the power to kill the movies, but the last few months have made one thing incredibly clear. Netflix has the power to kill their movies, yes. and it's doing that <laughs> with extreme prejudice. It's not a distributor. It's a graveyard with unlimited viewing hours. Netflix doesn't release movies. It inters them. End mm. quote. To be, to be clear, by the way, uh, Okja is getting an American, Korean, and UK theatrical release. So there there's at least that. Yeah, uh, but apparently it's a hard, hard won theatrical yes. release because they don't, yes. you know, they would rather they have a, a theatrical window. That is uh, that is criticism based on knowing zero information about numbers because Netflix does not release any of that information to anybody. Correct. So he doesn't know. Maybe a whole. He's just anecdotally assuming that because nobody's talking about these movies, that no one's seeing them. That yeah. may be accurate. He may be correct, yeah. but. It's a it's a pretty big leap to say it's a graveyard. I wonder if you ask the filmmakers themselves if they would mm-hmm. agree. Well, with they that. they get money, like right. That, that's kind of nice. But I, you can this data is out there. You can like you know do some Google well, trending estimate. They have estimates. They don't have they actual, have estimates yeah, of just like how people are discussing movies and stuff. So you don't have the actual you you don't have the actual figures. But I, I yeah, it's a lot. A lot of it's anecdotal. But guys, we've all seen it. Like how hard it was just to find that one thing. That new movie, yeah, but that let me put this really out. Big, let me know? put this out there too, right? Uh, so I, I agree with you, Jeff. I think David Ehrlich doth protest too much in this case, and that the flip side is millions of people c- can see uh, the new movie. Uh, I don't feel at home in this world, directed by the guy from Blue Ruin, um, and and it, you know, five years ago uh, or ten years ago, that might have never happened. Right, right. Uh, Macon Blair's film, I should say, is, is is the guy's name. I lost his name for a second, but yeah, five years ago, ten years ago, uh, a movie might have won the Grand Jury Prize of Sundance, and you'd never see it ever. You'd it would never be at an art house again. in three cities in America, and fifteen hundred people would see it, and, and, that's and it, it would get like a DVD release because there's not even enough money to do a Blu-ray. Like mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. 
it, it, like on the one hand, yes, agreed. It's in, Netflix is ingesting so much content that it's impossible, or it doesn't have a good ROI to advertise at all, or have like solid marketing campaigns for everything. On the other hand, uh, now that onus is on the filmmaker. Now it's on you know other people involved with the production to get the word out. And that is, in fact, the hardest part these days. It's, it's, that I, seems a little unfair. Making the film when, is only half the battle. The other half yeah. is, is generating buzz and attention for it. And it's, it's just the reality of filmmaking these days. When you strike a distribution deal, like marketing and everything is all part of it. So if Netflix is the distributor. It has some responsibility to, like, freaking advertise these things. And the thing is, too, like, it's so, so, so algorithmically... Uh, mm-hmm. I, I have a comment on that, which is, like, you know, yeah. I've, I've, I'm somewhat embedded in the uh, indie mm-hmm. film industry here in seattle and spoken with a bunch of filmmakers here and no one is ever happy with their distributor you know just in general (laughs) like no one ever says oh the distributor did an awesome flawless job marketing my film no one ever says that so that's fine it's not like netflix is like particularly like everyone's psyched about getting distributed by open road films right and like netflix is well i'm sure a24 and annapurna i'm sure people will be a little more excited about being such like a prestige thing here's the thing i'm not a fan of bringing out how shitty things were to defend how bad things are happening right now like that's <laughs> generally not a great line of reasoning uh, i think we can just balance both a little yes it was much harder to see these films and it was a uh, you know for most uh, independent films and foreign films it was mostly in theaters and in our house things um so netflix does give greater access i do think what ehrlich is talking about and we've talked about this a bit too is that we are losing fundamental like we're losing fundamental about what makes these things movies just because Netflix just doesn't care about the theatrical experience. And I guess they shouldn't because they're Netflix and they've always been about watching movies at home. But it's like when you jump into this boat of like, you know, getting huge films starring Brad Pitt and all these people and they're just going straight to your streaming service. And most people will probably just be watching them, not even on a TV, probably on a tablet or a phone or a computer or something. I, I feel like we are losing something fundamentally there. And, it's it's also rougher to accept when you look at Amazon and they're having a little yeah more of a tough time on the streaming front, but they're still doing okay. And they've definitely figured out a way to balance the actual theatrical release. And those movies all deserve it. And I think that's been a good thing. Like they it's the balance that we kind of need more from Netflix. Yeah, I mean, look, Netflix has over uh eighty like over ninety million subscribers worldwide. Uh, most of those are from the U.S. Uh, that's almost saturation point in the U.S., guys. I mean, mm-hmm. how many households are in the U.S.? You know, uh, yeah. maybe 150 million, right, let's say. So they're closing in on the total number of uh, places that would actually conceivably want to get Netflix. And so they've made mm-hmm. the calculation, hey, if we spend uh, $1 million marketing making Blair's new movie, it's going to get us, you know, an additional... X number of subscribers, that's not going to be worth the $1 million or whatever right. it is, right? So I understand their actions. Uh, but I think, you know, you, you bring up good points to Vinger. And at some point, uh, maybe the, if they continue to, quote-unquote, mistreat filmmakers or films like this, that, it, like, maybe one day it's going to stop uh, filmmakers from wanting to put their films there. But yeah. that does not seem to be the trend line. The trend line seems to be the opposite. You got people like Will Smith and Martin Scorsese who now have deals with Netflix. Like, that's... It, it's, it seems to be getting more prestigious, more big budget, more high profile, not less over time. Well, they, they just have more money. Too. Yeah, they do that's, have that's more the money. Thing. They yeah. have a ton of money, even if like, their it's financials... It's a sure thing. Yeah. yeah. 
their financials aren't looking great, but they're still getting money, more and more money kind of infused, uh, even though they're spending most of it on content deals. Uh, I just, yeah, it'll be interesting to see like what happens after these big releases, like especially Scorsese, like he was not treated well with silence and the release of that whole thing. Um, I, I, do I disagree wonder, that their financials are not doing great, by the way. I think they're going to be in, yeah. I think they will become one of the dominant companies, you know, on the scale of like, um, not necessarily a Facebook, but I think they will get as they will be up there. You know, they will I'm not be up denying there. that, but yeah. I'm just saying right now, most of their money is being spent on content deals because they need to buy this stuff and right. not on like actually making like they're they're not generating as much profit because they're just like pushing it all back in. Um, I just did a quick Google mm-hmm. search on number of U.S. households. Yep, 126 million. Yep, so you're saying 90 million have netflix or is that worldwide 90 million uh i think it's o- over 90 million um u.s just u.s let me let, no, that, no, is, that has to be worldwide yeah yeah because ha- 90 into 126 seems absurdly high yeah. uh let's see according to this yeah it's it's like 98 million worldwide i'm not sure i'm tr- i've been trying to find a breakdown of the u.s number mm-hmm. um but yeah it, they're changing about that it's, a, it's up there it's up there i mean that is that, a yeah. ridiculous <laughs> level of 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 uh, adoption that is insane yeah. i do wonder by the way if like uh actually distributing a film to theater gets simplified in a way that netflix just like figures out part of that problem too because a lot of it involves giant hard drives and long downloads and stuff imagine like actual netflix streaming or something coming to a theater or at least uh, being much simpler for a movie to come down to theater and for them to like project, like maybe that would solve some of Netflix's problems. Okay, okay, I, I have updated numbers, guys. It mm-hmm. looks like it's actually closer to around fifty million US subscribers. So it's that's actually, still that crazy. Makes more sense. Actually, not that high. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so they are in more than one in three households in the US. So, mm-hmm. which is still very impressive. That's still very good. Ninety still, into one hundred twenty-six. So I was like, that is. Yeah, that would have been like you're you you basically have no more room to grow. They still have <laughs> yeah. room to grow, but it's it's not a crazy amount of room. You know, it's just yeah. a little over half they have to grow. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're, do, they're doing really, really well. And also like, that's like households, you know, who might want Netflix or, you know, some, some households might share, like, doesn't, it doesn't take into account like shared accounts. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like maybe, uh, there's two separate households, but you're sharing your account with that household. You know what I mean? So or the other way where, yeah. you know, multiple accounts in, in one household. Right, that's possible, right, yeah. right, right, right. So anyway, um, I think, uh, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. Like you said, there's some big bets coming up. The Martin Scorsese thing, the Will Smith thing, and uh, how those do, I think, will help to dictate how much Netflix, uh, how, how well Netflix does. But I think also uh, a part of it is that they are, they are helping to destroy the, the movie industry as we know it. Mm-hmm. And that's kinda the ju- bigger concern. They kind of just need to wait for this whole movie industry to fall apart. <laughs> and then they can just pick up the pieces, you know. They they kind of yeah, swoop, swoop in like other uh, other big tech giants and just completely obliterate. There's no swooping. There's no swooping necessary. They're just there. They're there. <laughs> they're they're. It's facilitating yeah. that change. They they are making that change possible. They are allowing people to stay home. Like many other tech giants, they come in, they uh, they eliminate the need for the existing incumbents, and then they just take their place. And that's basically what happened. What's happening? The movie industry is not doing well, guys. Uh, have you guys seen these numbers? That we are scheduled uh, right this summer. Uh, the ticket sales are supposed to go down by five ten percent, uh, and it's going to be theoretically the worst summer in a decade. That's what people are estimating. Mm-hmm. 
um, in terms of the revenue for uh, for this summer. It's five to ten fewer ticket sales for the period between May and Labor Day. And uh, you know, as as we discussed in the summer movie wager, it's just sequels and, and franchise films, except for Dunkirk. Yeah. Uh, a lot of movies that people aren't looking for, forward to, and people are predicting it's just going to be bad. So mm-hmm. I wonder. I mean, this is a whole different conversation, but I wonder the psychological toll of just the news cycle at this point. I think that there's a there's a, a, a major <laughs> impact that that's having on every entertainment medium uh, because I, I think I think that there's just less appetite for some of that stuff. Um, based on just the sort of zeitgeist, you know, the the national psychological state. But maybe that's just me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm I'm feeling it. You know, I've actually thought about like I, I I've thought about quitting Twitter in some way. Like I I don't I don't think I can quit Twitter just because uh, uh, I work in social media for a living and so like i need to stay up to date with what's actually going like trends of how people are using things and stuff like that but um if i didn't i i would consider quitting just because i i it it just feels unhealthy every day there's the new scandals and it's like it's like okay how does it benefit me to know about this horrible thing that's happening um today the in my opinion you should either tune out or do something to resist or get in there you know what i mean like but there's no in between like just reading it and t- tweeting things it just feels like it's soul destroying without doing any anything um but that's my well, there's a level of resistance that's just psychological as well there's being sure. there's awareness and and uh you know, just sort of participating in in the you know the group think that's necessary to resist i think well mm-hmm. i think it used to i used to be able to come up with a better argument for it because if something went viral it could actually create change you know and so if you're spreading something then you're actually helping to cause a politician to do x or whatever but i think what has been clear is that it, it, it no longer matters. I mean, there is a great joke on this week's SNL. Yeah. Um, where <laughs> great joke. You know, Michael Che playing Lester Holt says, you know, oh, did I get him? Did I get Donald Trump? And uh, did I catch him committing, you know, whatever horrible crime? Oh, what's that? It doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Uh, it's kind of yeah. how I feel about it. stuff. Although today was particularly crazy, yeah. right? <laughs> because of the yeah, whole, but- like, there was the the report that oh Trump by the way uh, gave confidential information to the uh, the Russians he had in his office and then every time I check Twitter like every hour some <laughs> other crazy addition to that story would be added right the Trump administration responded and they were like oh no Trump never said anything about revealing sources meanwhile not actually denying the thing like it was right. every time I looked at well, my phone it yeah, got you progressively crazier that was you kind can't of insane. Even- just us bringing it up, you bringing it up right now, yeah. someone's going to listen to this three days from now and it's going to be completely <laughs> obsolete. This new yeah. – this it, it, we, we've, we've been doing this thing on – we have concerns where you know we'll, one of us will make a political comment and then we'll give each other 30 seconds to just rant and get shit off of our chest because it's so oppressive and you kind of have to. But I think we have to stop doing that because our episodes come out a few days later and it's just – it's all <laughs> moot. It, like it doesn't even – it's yeah. so it changes so fast now, and there's some new atrocity that's being <laughs> that's being perpetrated on our democracy that 
you like you, you I can't I don't even have time to get over being pissed off about the last thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a lot more dangerous to just like sit back and refresh Twitter all night. You know, like we probably used to before the world was on fire. So I've tried to be more conscious about how I do it, and like uh, during the weekends, I try to avoid it as much as I can. Um, yeah, but at the but same don't they time, want us to ignore it? They want us they to, want ignore, us to it. ignore it. Well, I'm talking about ignoring the chatter, not ignoring like. Yeah. news like when it's legitimate news updates and things kind of like that i definitely have separated the tried to separate the noise from the quality stuff and yeah i i wouldn't want to leave twitter entirely though i can i can see the appeal just practice self-care that's all i'm saying practice that's all self-care. you can do i don't really. know how david yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right i think we can end it there can't get enough eye-popping, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping reality TV. It's the best. Then head to Hey You, home of reality on demand. Stream and download the latest episodes from shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Real Housewives, same day as the US. What's more fun than that? Or binge old faves like The Simple Life and The Hills. That's hot. Hey You, reality on demand. Start your one-month free trial now.